This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is up on Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. You know, usually my listeners get a dose of Visidarte from uh, from Puccini's Tosca with me singing, but that wasn't me this time. Ladies and gentlemen, you just heard Tosca's aria in English, sung by my guest today. She is a singer, and guess what? She's not a diva. Dramatic soprano Jane Eaglin is definitely not a diva, and she likes to let everybody know about that. Jane is the kind of girl who doesn't obsess over her voice. But at the same time, she never veers from the solid technique that has made her a pinnacle of success in the world of opera. And as we continue in our journey together, speaking about her life and career in part two of our interview, I am developing a newly discovered respect for her grounded approach to her singing career and now her teaching. Born in Lincolnshire in the UK, she made headlines early in her skyrocketing career with performances of Norma, Brunhilde, and Isolde, singing in the major operatic houses around the globe and becoming a favorite with conductors such as Ricardo Muti, Mark Elder, and James Levine. Recognized for stunning musicianship and knowing her way around a Wagner phrase, she has accomplished what many, many singers only dream of, recognizing the qualities of her voice and staying with the truth of her sound. Today, Jane joins me from the Boston area where she lives with her husband, Brian, and their lovely puppy, Daisy. She is now teaching on faculty at the New England Conservatory of Music and passes on her truce to her eager young singers. And today we are going to look at her deepest challenges in life and how a movie soundtrack made her easily recognizable. Good morning, Jane Eaglin, and welcome back to Center Stage. Good morning. Thank you for having me back. Are you still reeling after our first interview? Uh, Yeah, I enjoyed (laughs) chatting with you so much. I'm happy to do it again. (laughs) In our first interview, for our listeners who didn't tune in, we, we actually listened to Jane's wonderful voice teacher, Joseph Ward. And wow, what a revelation. And we know where Jane's voice comes from, you know in this day. Um, Gene, I've just got to ask you, because, you know, we're just real people now. What does a typical day look like in the world of Jane Eaglin and family at home? (laughs) Well, of course, in the time of COVID, I think everyone's life is a little different. Um, Typically, you know, my normal day is driving into Boston, teaching five students maybe, and, you know, coming back, um, relaxing a little bit in the evening, uh, taking the dog out when I can. Um, but this summer, having been staying here, I, I, most summers I go to San Francisco to work with the Merrilla, um Young Artist Program with the opera there, but that didn't happen, of course, this year. So um, I've done some online teaching this summer. Um, I've taken up embroidery again for the first time in sort of 30 years or something, which I've actually quite enjoyed. So, um, just, you know, pottering around and really enjoying spending extra time with my husband, I have to say. I love that. So are you singing the embroidery aria from um, Peter Grimes while, <laughs> while we're doing the work? I guess I should. I've actually never sung that aria. I've taught it many, many times, so I probably could. But, uh, yeah, I do think of it every time I prick my finger with with the needle. <laughs> oh, I think you could pop that aria off. No problem. In fact, have you ever sung any Benjamin Britten? 
Um, the first thing I did at English National Opera, actually, was I understudied Miss Jessel in Turn of the Screw. Ooh, um, and actually did the sort of show performance of it and really enjoyed that. Um, I would have loved to have done Lady Billows, which I think would have been a great role for me, but it just didn't ever happen in the circumstances. But, uh, you know, some of his other works and so on, but, but that's the only operatic role I've ever done. Wow, wow. So I have to ask you a couple things. I mean, one, I have a favorite tune of yours. It's actually from a movie, a movie. And, you know, we, we didn't see it coming. We're, we're watching this wonderful Ang Lee film called Sense and Sensibility. And to this day, it's still one of my favorite films by Ang Lee. And what really one of my favorite films, period. And here at the end, at the credits, here we hear the fabulous voice of Jane Eaglin singing The Dream. And, you know, I've got to say, I, I watch the credits really happily because I want to bathe in your sound. <laughs> that voluptuous sound, that lunar quality that you have, literally, lunar. <laughs> there is something about the... I, I, I referred to you in our first interview as the essence of silk in your voice. And, uh, and I think that is truly so. So would you mind if we played a little bit of The Dream right now, that wonderful Certainly. piece that you sing in the credits at the end of Sense and Sensibility? And here we go. Thank you. 
Ladies and gentlemen, that is the music of Patrick Doyle, and it is interpreted by the wonderful soprano, Jane Eaglin, who I'm speaking with today. Jane, I have to tell you right now, my, my pianist, David Hochelbohr in, in New York, is sobbing right now, okay? I, I, I know this for a fact. This is his favorite piece in the world. He and I have uh, performed it several times. There is a luminosity about the arch and all these phrases that, that you you seem to understand immediately. It's very Wagnerian in a way. Um, how did you nab this gig, and what was the recording process like with Patrick Doyle? I, I agree. I mean, I think that the, the song is so beautiful and beautifully written for the voice. The phrases are just delicious to sing. Mm. Um, it was when I was uh, had a recording, solo recording contract with Sony Classical, um, and they were producing the it was a Sony uh, movie, and they were doing the soundtrack. And so I had a call, I think like five days before the recording date was, was going to be, um, and asked me if I'd be interested, and I said, of course. Um, so they said, okay, well, we'll send you the music as soon as we have it, which basically arrived the day before the recording. Oh. Um, sort of middle of the day by courier, I think. Oh. And I sat at the piano and thought, oh, okay, this is fine. Um, so I went in, the, it was early afternoon, I remember the recording the next day. And when I arrived, um, Patrick Doyle, you know, was just lovely and so happy to meet, you know, meet him. And he was very nice to me and so on. And he said, uh, just hang on a minute, we're just rewriting the end of the song. Oh, Um, And so him and the orchestrator were literally the last two pages were being completely rewritten. So uh, basically they just gave me the two pages and we recorded it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we we had several takes mainly because it had to be a certain length and literally between Mm. like one or two seconds difference it could be uh, to fit with the credits which had already been filmed. Um, So that was the, the amazing conductor who was able to sort of take a half second off a recording or whatever and uh, it was very exciting to do I must say and and Emma Thompson who of course was the star of the movie but also wrote the screenplay Mm -hmm. actually came uh, to the recording and sat in the studio while we were doing it and and Ang Lee the director was also there sort of telling me how this fitted into the the whole story and why he'd wanted it with a operatic sound and why that was how he saw the end and, and showed me the end of the very movie when they th- I think Alan Rickman's character throws the Colonel Brandon throws the coins into the air and then it goes into the the music mm-hmm. and actually showed me that and then we recorded it so it was very exciting I must say <laughs> um and how I, I, I... We all wish we had your life right now, Jane Eaglin. I mean, really, and you probably don't realize this, but I'm a real film person. And I do regular shows on film music and and directors. And in this studio, we love film. So the opportunity to be with Emma Thompson and Ang Lee, and I know on that film, he was so specific to his actors that he had them nightly write letters within the character they were playing. So I can only imagine when he spoke to you, he spoke with the same specifics. Right. I mean, you know, I can't remember the exact details, but but Kate Winslet's character sings the the music, not the whole song, but some of the music during the the movie. And basically he wanted it to sort of all be sort of drawn together. So the whole movie came to a close and Mm. it had a sort of um, a grandeur to it, which is why he wanted the orchestra and, and an operatic kind of sound. So it had that sort of final feeling to it, I think, mm. which um, I think was very interesting. And, and you know, uh, Patrick Dawes' music, I, I, he's done lots of movies with Emma Thompson and also with Kenneth Branagh. Um, and I think his music is so beautiful mm-hmm. and, and just very 
sort of luscious in its it way. Is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it, totally. was, it was a great experience. And his orchestrations, wonderful, all, yeah. always. Yeah. So, wow. Um, so do, were you paid well for this gig? <laughs> uh, I can't remember, honestly. I'm sure it was fine. I mean, it was It was just one of the... It's been very nice in my career to do things that are a little bit different. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and that was one of those things. I mean, just uh, don't to get off the subject of that too much, but one of the very first things I did was I played a music hall singer singing Royal Britannia in Land of Hope and Glory in a TV series um, that starred... That was actually Colin Firth's first big sort of thing that he did oh and also gosh. Laurence Olivier was in it so I actually got to have dinner with Laurence Olivier and, and uh, Colin first brought me gin and tonic on a train journey so those kind of okay that's not too things. shabby yeah no it was it was a very nice gin and tonic <laughs> <laughs> yeah and those two boys you know had great careers didn't they oh my yeah. I love these stories but the dream from Sense and Sensibility, you know, plays a, another role in your life, doesn't it? I mean, at one point, um, you were diagnosed with a brain tumor. And right. um, can you share with us, uh, you know, how you came upon, I mean, the, the symptoms for this, what you went through, and how you kind of came full circle with this song? Yes. Um, well, I, I started teaching at this point. I was teaching at a liberal arts school in Ohio and, uh, and started to notice that I was having trouble playing the piano with my right hand. And because I play a lot of my lessons, I, I really noticed it. I thought, is it carpal tunnel? I just couldn't really control when my fingers came down on the keys. And gradually it got worse down my right side and, and I couldn't hold a fork even and I certainly couldn't write. My writing was very sort of jagged. Um, then my balance started to go, and I had a few tests with the doctors and so on, and eventually they said, well, we should send you for an MRI. So I had an MRI, and I had a phone call about two hours later saying you have a golf ball-sized tumor in your right cerebellum in your brain. Wow. So um, being in Cleveland was great. They sent me to the Cleveland Clinic to see the head of the brain tumor uh, clinic there. And he basically said that he was 95% sure it was benign and he was 95% sure that he could take it out successfully. Um, But it was too big for anything other than surgery. And if I didn't have it done within 10 days, I would probably end up with uh, brain damage permanently. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Ten days later, I was in surgery. I had eight hours of brain surgery and came out with a bit of mesh in my head and a little bit of a hole in my brain. (laughs) And and was it kind of like the thyroid experience that you just knew you were okay when you woke up? Um, Yes, I did. I mean, I I wasn't worried about it, partly because the the symptoms had got really bad just before, and I I actually really couldn't walk properly at all. I was in a wheelchair and so on just because of my balance. Um, and so I kind of just wanted it dealt with, like, just get this thing out of my head and let me move on. Absolutely. I, it was, as often these things are, I think it was much worse for my husband. Well, I know it was much worse <laughs> for my husband. Um, but I was just like, just do it, get it out there, and we'll be fine. Um, and I, I remember sort of waking up, being moved, I was being moved to ICU, and I remember sort of waking up uh, as they were moving me from the, from the operating theatre. And in my best British accent, I, I sort of, as you can tell, I still have the British accent. But when I get sort of, I don't know, when I'm coming through from anesthetic, maybe, I don't know, I get very northern. And I heard my voice saying, is it over? In this very strange northern accent and hearing sort of laughter in the voices going, yes, Jane, you're fine. It's okay. I was like, oh, good. And carried on. Um, 
So then after, and I felt sort of fine, and I went to recovery, and my husband came to see me, and everything was, was feeling good. Um, and so then they took me to ICU. Um, so this was probably, I mean, two or three hours after the end of the surgery. So I was still pretty groggy, but, but coming to. They took me to ICU, and um, uh, the two young nurses came in, and they started chatting to me as they were sort of changing my gown and uh, making me comfortable and so on and so forth. And so they said, what do you do? And uh, one of them said, you know, what's your job, whatever. And I don't often sort of tell people, but I thought, yeah. well, I'm going to be here for a while. So I said, well, actually, I'm a, a singer. And they said, oh, you know, do you sing around here? And I said, well, <laughs> no, not really. I, I sort of sing all over the place. I'm an opera singer. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. You know, have you sung, you know, the Met? And I said, well, yes, I have. Oh, my goodness. And they were, you know, chatting away. Then one of them said, well, you know, my favorite song ever is an opera song. And you won't know it, but it's so beautiful. And I listen to it every night before I go to sleep. And it just sends me to sleep. And it's just my favorite. And it's from a movie called Sense and Sensibility. <sighs> and I kind of lay there thinking, I must still be asleep. This can't really be happening. <laughs> And, and she went, yeah, it's just gorgeous. I love it. And I listen to it literally every day. And so I just turned to her and I said, well, that's me singing that. And they both just stopped what they were doing and looked at me like, okay, she's had brain surgery. She's not quite with it. I'm sure that's what it is. And, and they said, really, that's you? I said, mm-hmm, yeah. But, and they were like, oh, okay, okay. Anyway, well, great. And then they sort of did their jobs and off they left. And two minutes later came back and, and were like, oh, my gosh, it really is you. I think they'd been and looked to me up on YouTube or something. And it really is you singing that. Oh, my goodness. And it was very bizarre, I have to say. It was one of those things that you couldn't make up. You know, you couldn't make up that story. That is extraordinary. Um, you made their day. And... <laughs> Very strange. <laughs> I think that is the most fantastic full circle story around this song. You know, you should you should be writing to Ang Lee, you know, and telling him yeah, about yeah. this. Well, you know, I'm I'm in the process of thinking about sort of starting to write a book, and yeah. it'll all be in there. <laughs> I I would think you should, my dear Jane. I would think you should. So, in line with that, I mean, what what's really the most important thing to you right now, Jane Eaglin? Um, I mean, I just, I just have always wanted to sort of have a happy life, and you know, I, I feel very grateful that people uh, are sort of inspired by some of the music that I've been able to provide, and mm-hmm. you know, that makes me, it makes me feel good that. Uh, just recently, I mean, I, I don't like to talk about myself in those terms, honestly. I'm not, I, I feel a little uncomfortable, sort of saying what I've done or whatever. But just mm-hmm. recently, the Met did rebroadcast um, the Tristan and Isolde that Ben Hepner and I did yes. um, in 99. It was on their streaming service. And I was really touched to get so many emails and messages and so on from people saying how much they enjoyed it and people saying, oh, right now, things as they are, I just really needed this right now. And that was, it was very lovely to know that that still has an effect on people. And that's it's very comforting and, and very sweet to know that people still feel that way. That's wonderful. Um, That's wonderful. And I just, I love teaching. I really do love teaching. I'd always wanted to teach. It wasn't just, well, when I don't sing, I guess I'll teach. And passing on the things I learned from Joseph Ward and also the things that I've learned, uh, you know, from standing next to Pavarotti and singing Turandot on stage at the Met, you learn some things from that. <laughs> and so... Um, <laughs> That just 
things that I wanted to pass on and I and I love doing that and I just I love working with the singers that I have and, and really do enjoy that so much. This this is incredible to hear. And you're just so low key about it. I mean yes, you do have a few things to share from this amazing <laughs> career of yours. My Lord. And that's the other thing. You're still performing, aren't you? Yes, a bit. I mean, I did a recital at the end of last year, and I would have done an immolation scene this summer if COVID hadn't happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of, I'm in a lucky position of if it's something that I want to do, mm. then then I, I do it. Um, and I still, if it's certain things, I, I enjoy it very much. But I also enjoy not having to worry every day about my voice. And not that I ever worried per se, mm-hmm. but, you know, yeah. for for. 25, 30 years, I couldn't go in a restaurant that was noisy or I've never been a drinker. But if I want to have a glass of wine now, I can have a glass of wine where that couldn't happen or always concerned. So-and-so's got a cold or well, I can't go and see them then. And just mm-hmm. the things that you have to do mm-hmm. for this career that you just take it, you, know, you, you do it. It's not something that you're sort of aware of. But not having to worry about what's happening with the voice is a very nice thing. <laughs> I, can, I can imagine. And now you're happy with your home outside of Boston and and your beautiful puppy and your wonderful husband and I do understand that because sometimes we're chained to the fact that we can't have a really normal existence and now uh, you know I feel that you have a little more space to have that that kind of life and and to relax um, yes, and- absolutely. And it, I, I mean, it sounds a little facetious, but one of the reasons I didn't want to sing so much is because I did want to get a dog. I've wanted a dog my whole life. And so, you know, to have that sort of normal life, because I really never have. I, I went on contract to English Hush Opera when I was 22, I believe, or 23. So it's really been a long time and it's wonderful and I've loved it so much and so grateful and happy to be able to do those things but there is something nice now that I'm a little older to to have a sort of slightly more relaxed and and normal life Mm -hmm. and you have time to write that book and and do well in that you know I've just got to ask you one thing have you had any moments in this incredible career of yours? I mean, when you skyrocketed, it was very quick. You were singing everywhere. You were a favorite in Seattle. You formed amazing relationships with people like Spade Jenkins and intendants everywhere. Were there ever moments where you were actually performing on stage where you could put your technique aside for a moment? And did you ever find yourself transported to like another plane? Like you were literally singing out of your mind and just finding a kind of nirvana in that? Um, It's hard to say. I I think in order to really, you know, do your best vocally and also dramatically, I think, as a singer, you have to have one foot outside of of that performance. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I always say to my students, you can't be a method actor and and be a singer because you have to be in control of your instrument. Mm -hmm. Um, I would tend to find that I would get the most moved or um, affected by when I was on stage by the the, the moments when I wasn't singing, when it was the orchestra mom, uh, was playing. Yeah. I mean, for example, the end of Goethe Dämmerung would get me every time because I think it's just extraordinary. And mm-hmm. Siegfried's funeral march as well in, yes. in Goethe Dämmerung. Um, and, and certainly when I did the emulation scene in concert, when I would still be on stage for the rest of the play out, that was some of the most want to be part of that, to be sort of in the middle of that incredible sound and that, that music making and know that I'd been part of it. I wouldn't be affected by it until I'd stopped singing. Mm. Um, so I can't say that there was ever when I was actually singing that I felt that because 
I always was not necessarily thinking about technique, but thinking about what's going to happen here. And, yeah. you know, if you're not feeling quite right, if something doesn't quite go right, you go, okay, how, what's going on here? I've got to fix that for the next time. Not necessarily anything that an audience would even notice, but just things that you just, oh, it doesn't feel quite like it should. Um, but see, that, get, so, that gets back to your amazing musicianship. Um, you know, you are definitely part of the orchestra yourself. You, yes. And I've heard, I've heard a rumor that you're such a fantastic pianist that you can actually score read at the piano keyboard. Is that true? Uh, not really. <laughs> you mean from a, from a, a orchestral score? score? Mm-hmm. No, not really. I'm, I maybe could have done a bit. I could probably sort of fudge it, um, but that's often what I do with a lot of the, particularly if I'm playing for students that are senior from the bigger rep. Um, I might not always play the right notes, but I know how the pieces go. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you're, you're working on those with young singers, I think that's sort of more important. Mm-hmm. I actually, we've been talking about all my health issues, but um, that. Ten years ago, I actually lost the end of my uh, ring finger on my left hand. and I slipped getting uh, out of the shower and the end of my finger came off. So I can't play like I used to because that finger doesn't reach the keys. (laughs) That's unbelievable. So there are some issues there, but but I, I, you know, I know how to sort of which bits of a score to pick out. I know where the, the, the melody needs to come, what a, what a singer needs to hear. Um, and a lot of singers will say, okay, yeah, I know you play some wrong notes, but it's much easier to sing with me playing than sometimes with an accomplice who doesn't know the style of the piece. Yeah. Um, so I try to do that. But I might have been able to score read maybe years ago, but I haven't tried for a long time. Oh, come on. You're being modest. You're being (laughs) modest. I know it. Hey, I want to know, Jane Eaglin, what was the best process for you? Is it the process of learning the music? Was that more exciting? Or was it the performance? Um, Hard to say. A bit of both, really. I mean, some rehearsal processes really come to mind as being really extraordinary. Um, when I, I was very lucky to sing Norma in Italy with Riccardo Muti conducting, and we had a month or five weeks rehearsal in Ravenna in Italy where he had a summer house. Um, and so basically I had five weeks of six hours a day personal coaching with Muti, which was extraordinary. Mm. And he kind of taught me my Italian, and we worked on so many things of the style, and that was just one of those times that I will never forget. That was amazing. I can imagine. Um, extraordinary. So, you know, that was a really incredible rehearsal time. But but then sometimes doing, like, the performances of my first ring, which was in Chicago. Um, I'd done Valkyrie before. I'd done Siegfried a couple of performances, but I'd never done Gosset Demrung. Mm-hmm. And so... I didn't really get that much rehearsal. So my first cycle was also my first Gutter Demerung. So it was Tuesday Valkyrie, Thursday Siegfried, Saturday Gutter Demerung. Um, and I'd worked very hard on that and I was kind of ready to go. But even so, I'd never sung the whole thing on stage. I'd never sung it all with orchestra. Um, but as performances, that was something which I will never forget. My first ring wow. and, and Joseph Ward was there, which was so incredible that he could be there. Sitting in the front row, which I didn't love at the time, but it was okay. But he loved um, you. Jane I Eaglin? I didn't need to see his face all the time I was singing. Oh. <laughs> You are a goddess amongst singers. I've been thrilled to have you as my guest twice, not once, but twice. Well, thank you for having me. I hope when we meet next, it'll be over a glass of wine. And in the meantime, everyone, look for Jane Eaglin's recordings. This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is now down on Center Stage. Center Stage.